Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. If you're noticing things falling apart a bit as you're getting older, you're not alone. In this episode, we're taking a look at the genetic changes that underpin ageing and how we can use this knowledge to live longer, healthier lives. And we find out why the most useful anti-ageing product in your bathroom might be your toothbrush rather than that fancy moisturiser. Before we start, we're still planning the 2021 series of Genetics Unzipped and we want to hear from you. What topics would you like us to explore? Who would you like us to interview? Do you have a fantastic story from the world of genetics that you'd like to share? Or are you from a company or organisation interested in partnering with us for a sponsored episode that would be of interest to our many thousands of genetics curious listeners around the world? If so, just tweet us at geneticsunzip or email me at podcast at geneticsunzipped.com. Last year, we doubled our listenership and we'd love to do that again this year. So please do spread the word about the podcast through social media, emails, carrier pigeon, whatever works for you. And please do make sure you're subscribed to the podcast through your podcasting app of choice so you don't miss a single episode. And as always, it would be great if you could leave us a rating and a short review on Apple Podcasts to help more people discover the show. Now, with that out of the way, let's get on with it. It was my birthday earlier this month, which I celebrated in lockdown with an excellent online wine tasting. Now, I don't know about you, but every passing year makes me more acutely aware of my own mortality, especially as things start getting wrinkly and sagging a bit. So is age just a number, as the saying goes, or is there something deeper going on at a biological level? To dig into the ageing process, I had a chat with Andrew Steele, author of the new book, Ageless, who's taken a deep dive into the processes that underlie ageing and, excitingly, whether we might be able to slow them down to live longer, healthier lives. But first things first, what exactly is ageing? It's a good question. It's a tough one. There's a big long chapter in my book trying to sort of go through the nitty gritty biological details of this. But I think the easiest, the simplest definition is actually a statistical one rather than a biological one, which is to say that your rate of ageing is the rate at which your risk of death increases as you go throughout your life. So in humans, that risk doubles approximately every seven or eight years. We call this the mortality rate doubling time. And by looking at that number for a different species, you get some impression of how fast they age. So as I say, humans every seven or eight years, if you look at animals like mice we know that that happens in a matter of months their risk of death doubles but then right at the other end of the spectrum there are some animals that don't age effectively so if you look at galapagos tortoises for example they're one of a few animals that have what's called negligible senescence otherwise known as biological immortality and that doesn't mean they actually are immortal they don't live forever but their risk of death is constant no matter how long ago they were born i find this amazing i think naked mole rats are very similar aren't they 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 just like they're born they look really horrible and old and wrinkly and then they just stay like that (laughs) That's the delightful irony. They are also, we think, negligibly senescent. It's very hard to get good enough data to absolutely nail it down. But exactly as you say, they look like these little sort of wrinkly penises with teeth. They look geriatric on day one, and yet somehow they're about the same size as mice, and and size is often quite a good determinant of how long you'll live in the animal kingdom. And yet a naked mole rat can live 35 years, whereas a mouse can live two or three at most. So let's drill into some of this stuff. So you've talked about like the statistical definition of ageing, which is like, you know, the closer to the grave you are, basically. But Mm -hmm. what's actually going on inside the body? You've mentioned this term like senescence. So what actually happens as a physical body ages? 
It's a variety of different processes. And I think something that we've started to understand over the last 10 or 20 years, that ageing isn't one thing. It's a collection of things all happening together that happen to, in this sort of slightly morbid, synchronised way, orchestrate our demise when we get to a certain age. And I break it down in the book into 10 hallmarks of ageing. There was a paper that came out in 2013 with exactly that name. And they actually list nine. I added one and combined a couple, so it all got a bit messy when I was trying to work out how to do it because the science has moved on a little bit since then. But basically, if you look at these 10 different things, they're things that increase with age. If you increase the rate at which they happen, they speed up your ageing. So that means you die sooner or you get diseases more quickly. And if you slow them down, and this is the bit I'm really excited about, you can slow the ageing process and defer those diseases. So to give a few examples, one of them is DNA damage and mutations. So you've got like basically a chemical assault on your genetic code that changes the information that's stored in there over the course of your life. You've got senescent cells, so individual cells effectively getting old. You've got damage to the bits inside cells, things like the mitochondria, which generate the energy in there. And then you've got damage to the molecules, the proteins, and finally, you've got sort of overarching forms of damage or all of these things combined together to undermine the systems in your body, things like the immune system, which are undermined by all of these different things happening together and slowly conspire to make us less resilient and uh, more likely to die as we get older. It's really interesting that you talk about DNA damage because I've just written a book about cancer, um, Rebel Cell, available now in all good bookshops. And it's very uh, good, by the way. <laughs> thank you. It checks in the post. But yeah, one of the key <laughs> drivers of cancer is damage to DNA. And also, as I discovered, not just the mutations that gather in our cells, but also kind of damage to tissue, inflammation, creating an environment in our bodies where you know, rogue cells become more likely to thrive. Mm. So it does feel like there's all these processes working together. I mean, interestingly, with with cancer, would you consider like cancer a a symptom of ageing, a disease of ageing? Yeah, there's this really fascinating debate about whether we should call ageing itself a disease. Now, I'm going to completely sidestep that because it's a philosophical and biological nightmare. But I think um, the way to think about it is it's something that predisposes you to a load of other diseases. And cancer is a really good example. Like this sort of classic root cause of cancer is these mutations. It's because the cells accumulate these mistakes in their genetic code, as of course, you know, and you can read in your book, um, allows them to divide more and more times. And eventually they can get so big that they can form a tumour. And that's what ultimately goes on to kill you. But it's not just the DNA damage we now understand. Like cells can accumulate this damage throughout our lives and obviously the longer they have the more time they have to get that damage so that's one way in which aging can contribute but also exactly as you say one of the things that goes wrong in our body as we age is we get this chronic inflammation this constant sort of low level fizzing and buzzing of our immune system which means it's always on slightly too high a state of alert and that can predispose us to cancer and also there's a sort of irony because although our immune system is getting more hyperactive, sort of paranoid, it's also getting less effective at its real jobs. So one of the other things that the immune system can do is sniff out sort of precancerous cells and destroy them before they get to the point of forming a tumour. And there's a really interesting paper, which um, I think is probably a little bit on the reductionist side, but it's provocative because what it does is it looks at the size of an organ called your thymus, which is a crucial part of your immune system, which declines very rapidly in size with age. And it compares the size of your thymus to the instance of cancer. And they're using a mathematical model to argue that the incidence of cancer is almost entirely driven by the decline in the function of your immune system. So as I say, I think that's probably a bit reductionist. There are multiple things going on. Cause or correlation. Absolutely. (laughs) So one of the terms I think you use in your book is this idea of inflammaging. Am I right? Mm -hmm. I don't know quite how you'd pronounce it. Um, It's a bit of that sort of portmanteau (laughs) word of inflammation and ageing. So that's really this idea that as we age, there are things just driving the inflammation in our bodies. And that is one of the things that's making everything fall apart. 
Yeah, and I think the example I always go to with this, and it's very simple to explain, it's also the thing that's nearest term in terms of human treatments, is uh, the accumulation of senescent cells. So we said earlier, senescence is just sort of the scientific word for ageing. And um, these were first discovered in a dish in a lab back in the 1960s. A guy called Leonard Hayflick was watching cells divide, and he noticed that after about 50 divisions they just stopped. Yeah, they kind of conk out, right? And and they look weird. Like I, I went to a lab and actually had to look at some of these things. I'm a computational biologist by background, so obviously I, I don't look down a microscope very often. But yeah, that you can see even to the incredibly untrained eye like mine, they look bizarre. You can tell there's something weird going on. So they were christened senescent cells, as in, you know, cells that are sort of clapped out and old. And so there was a, a theory that perhaps accumulation of these cells within our own bodies could be driving their ageing. And what we found after you know studying it for the intervening few decades is that that is indeed the case. Animals do accrue these senescent cells, some because they've divided too many times, some are actually driven to senescence because of inflammation. So there's this, it's, it's a complicated sort of multifaceted process. But the thing that the senescent cells do is to emit a toxic cocktail of molecules. And that sounds counterintuitive, like why would our cells be in our bodies, you know, effectively killing us from the inside? The answer is they're calling for help. They're saying to the immune system, over here, you know, come and clear me up. But the problem is that as we get older, our immune systems get less effective. These senescent cells get larger in number. And all of these uh, molecules they're secreting out into our bodies drive inflammation, which can accelerate the aging process, make cancer and heart disease and dementia more likely. And also, ironically, it can create a feedback process where you can get more and more of these senescent cells. So that's sort of the downward spiral that's associated with aging. The reason that I get excited when talking about this, I can you know, look at your face now, you're not excited at all. Just, it's my birthday next week. So, you know, the tick of mortality <laughs> is upon me. It's happening to us all right now as you listen to this. Yeah, but the good thing about it is that we've got drugs that can delete these senescent cells selectively. We can kill the senescent cells and leave the rest of the cells in your body intact. And when you give these to mice, we find that the mice basically get biologically younger. They have less cancer, they have less heart disease, they have fewer cataracts, they live longer, of course, and they even have better fur. So it looks as though these underlying hallmarks of the aging process don't just impact on disease. They also impact on the more superficial stuff, you know, the wrinkles, the grey hair that all of us get, because basically it's all caused by the same biology. And what's really cool is that these drugs are starting human trials. And at first, that's going to be for diseases where we know senescent cells to be a problem. So there are diseases like arthritis and age-related blindness and lung fibrosis that we know are sort of driven by senescent cells. But if those trials work, if the drugs turn out to be safe, if they turn out to be effective, then we could hope at some point to be giving them to people preventatively when they haven't got anything, you know, quote unquote wrong with them, apart from the fact that they were born a long time ago. So we could clear out those cells and preventatively try to reduce the risk of them developing diseases in the future. So I'm not going to get any for my birthday next week then? I think perhaps not this birthday, but it might not be that many birthdays before these are available. (laughs) Keeping my fingers crossed. Now, this is a genetics podcast, so it'd be remiss of me if I didn't drill into what we know about the genetics, because obviously we are all genetically unique and people do seem to age at different rates and in in different ways. And people do have different lifespans. We don't all get to exactly our three score years and 10 and then you're Mm. done. So what do we know so far about some of the genes that are involved in ageing, like the genetic variations? So the first thing to say is that the genetics of ageing, it has surprisingly little effect. I think there's a lot of stuff in the press that might sort of lead you to believe that our fate is basically determined by what's written in our genes. But as we've done more and more detailed studies into the genetics of ageing in the general population, what you find is that somewhere between 10 and 20% of our lifespan is heritable, which is sort of the biological term for written in your genes. And what that means is that the other 80 to 90% is determined by lifestyle. So there's a lot that you can do to sort of, you know, keep yourself healthy. A lot of the standard health advice you've heard before. It's the boring stuff in it. 
<laughs> a lot of it is, yeah. And um, there's also just luck. You know, at the end of the day, things like cancer, particularly, if you just happen across the wrong combination of mutations, you can you know get cancer and die, plus or minus five or ten years even. So there's a there's a large component that isn't written in our genes. However, if you want to try and find some of the more exciting sort of longevity genetic stuff, you need to go into weirder populations, and I, I mean sort of weird in a good way. So if you look at people who make it to extremely old ages, people uh, known as centenarians who make it to 100 or above, it seems that the genetics of their longevity is much more heritable. So if you've got a parent or a sibling who's made it to 100 years old, then you're about 10 times more likely to manage that than someone in the general population. So sort of to clarify that a little bit, you know, say your parents live to 70 or 80, it's probably not putting a ceiling on, on your longevity. But if you've got a sibling who, or a parent who's made it to 90 or 100 or you know even beyond, then suddenly that is something to get excited about. Yeah, I really noticed that when I I was researching um, Rebel Cell, the cancer book, it seems that, you know, your cancer risk, it does start going up quite steeply after the age of 60. But if you've made it to 100 or into your late 90s without cancer, there's a really good chance that you'll carry on. So there does seem to be something in the genetics of those oldest olds that is protective or, or cancer resistant in some way. I find that particular group of people really fascinating. Yeah, and there's a the statistic I like to sort of illustrate this is you know, that they effectively put off all these age-related diseases, right? They have about the same amount of ill health at the end of their life as the rest of us do, but they just you know push it back by 10 or 20 years, which means as a percentage of their lifespan, they are spending less time ill. And that's, I think, something we can all aspire to. Yeah, too busy to be old right now. <laughs> just, <laughs> just got stuff to do. So what else do we know about some of the genes in maybe some other species? Because I know there's been loads of research going on in things like worms in particular, and people get very excited about this. And they say, oh, look, we found the cure for ageing in worms. I'm like, how translatable is this really from a species like a tiny nematode worm or a fruit fly to humans? I really credit worms with getting us to where we are in modern ageing research. And actually, it is entirely down to genetics. This was a, a revolution in slow motion that happened in the 80s and 90s. Because if you go back to the 60s or the 70s or that, you know, that kind of period of time, a lot of biologists thought that ageing was just a, a natural, inevitable process of sort of wearing out and decay. And so it wasn't a particularly interesting thing to study. Because you know, if it is this, this sort of global process that affects every part of your body, every molecule, every cell, you know, how on earth can you get a handle on that in the lab? But in the 1980s, there was a gene discovered called, originally enough, age one that could extend a worm's lifespan by 50%. Now, if we're talking about humans, that would be going from 80 to 120 years old. That would be amazing. Obviously, in worms, this is going from two weeks to three weeks. So it's not quite the same sort of magnitude of lifespan increase. But what this did was it really uh, lit a fuse. It showed scientists that you could do these sort of precision genetic interventions. You could go in and change actually a single letter of DNA in the case of age one and massively extend the lifespan of an organism. And that meant that suddenly, you know, this rule book, the fact that aging was something immutable, so complex you couldn't possibly study it in the lab, that was just ripped up. And that encouraged a whole load more experiments. And so the one that really gets a lot of attention is one called DAF2, which was discovered by Cynthia Kenyon in the early 90s. That doubled worm lifespan. And so if anyone had any doubts, the age one you know, it's only 50 percent. it's in a worm you know it's a bit of a weird situation maybe just a one-off fluke they were sort of banished and so over the next couple of decades more and more aging retarding genes were found in worms and actually the current reigning champion it's gone full circle and it's back to age one they found a different age one mutant that multiplies worm lifespan by 10 wow absolutely incredible so it goes from two weeks to 20 weeks and the last worm in their experiment i emailed the scientists who'd, 
who did the experiment while writing the book and it almost made it to 300 days which is absolutely incredible almost a year old worm that's absolutely amazing I remember years ago doing a podcast about the genetics of aging and I went to UCL to talk to the researchers there in the in mm. the aging lab and yeah and they were talking about how they kind of have this like little top of the pops chart of like the oldest mm-hmm. worm they've got but that it was nothing near that yeah this age one mutant just like blew everything else out of the water I think there's uh, there's nothing even within a factor of two or something like that so it's um it's pretty impressive so coming back to the general field of aging research like there's a lot of really exciting stuff in humans and in other organisms and there seems to be a lot of put it one way nonsense um so out of all the things that you were looking at what do you think are the really exciting areas that have genuine potential and also are there a couple of things that you're like nah that's rubbish i mean there's a lot of rubbish talked in anti-aging and it's, it's something that's been throughout the ages humans have been looking for sort of some kind of fountain of eternal youth and so one of the most ridiculous examples I came across while researching the book is there was a researcher who thought in the 1920s that you could gain eternal life by surgically attaching monkey testicles to humans uh-huh. and I think that's obviously quite a fraught procedure in terms of you know just for the monkey hygiene, as well as the human absolutely yeah yeah you've got to consider both sides of this I guess <laughs> But yeah, no, nobody really wins in that equation. And obviously it turned out it didn't confer eternal life after all. So that was a shame. I think that particularly in the last 10 or 20 years, we have finally got a biological understanding where if you're looking at stuff that's coming out in you know proper reputable scientific journals that's slowing down or reversing aging in lab animals, a lot of this research is pretty rigorous. It's, you know, proved in multiple different ways and we've got so many different ways to tackle the aging process so as i said i break it down into these 10 hallmarks and we've got multiple ideas to treat each of those hallmarks so you know even if one of them turns out to be you know not quackery that's unfair but even if it basically doesn't pan out for whatever reason because we know that biology is very hard to go from the lab into medicine even if 90 percent of these things fall at whatever hurdle we're still going to have a huge range of treatments to choose from so I think, you know, we're going to be dealing with skin cream vendors giving us all kinds of bullshit claims for a long time to come. But there's some really genuinely exciting stuff that's actually going to work and actually going to be available, you know, from your doctor rather than just um, some nutritional supplement that's available in the supermarket, certainly within the next five or 10 years. What's sort of the end game here? Because when I went to talk to um, Peter Campbell, who's one of the leading cancer geneticists at the Sanger Institute, I sort of said, well, what's the end goal if we do manage to find much, much better ways of, of treating cancer or preventing cancer? And he was like, well you know, I guess it's that you get old enough to die of something else. And like, we can't live forever, can we? And there's also implications of having a a much larger population of very old people. So how does this sort of pan out for society? So to answer the first question, I'm much more excited about ageing medicine than I am about medicine for specific diseases. There's an estimate done where demographers can look at what kills people, basically. And Peter's exactly right. You know, if you look at what would happen if we could completely cure all cancer, which is obviously a a big ask from our current uh, state of understanding, even though, you know, exciting stuff is in the pipeline, it would only add about two years to life expectancy. And the same is true of heart disease. If you could completely eradicate all heart disease, then, you know, basically people live for two more years, but then they just die of something else. Because, you know, say you do cure someone of cancer, the fundamental problem is that it's in an old body. It's in a body that's suffering from heart disease, a body that's, you know, perhaps in the first stages of cognitive decline or dementia. They've got weakened muscles, you know, they're losing their sight, they're losing their hearing, they're losing their independence. All of these things are happening at the same time. And so eventually one of them is going to get severe enough to kill you, even if we pick off these individual diseases, you know, one at a time. 
And that's what really excites me about ageing research, because the plan is to defer all of these diseases simultaneously. So as I said, uh, with these senolytic drugs that kill senescent cells, they don't just defer cancer, they don't just defer heart disease, they seem broadly to be a global reversal of the ageing process. And if we can come up with ways to treat these other hallmarks, they'll have the same kind of wide-ranging effects on a number of different diseases. And I think, you know, the end goal, I'm not necessarily saying this is going to be around the corner, but perhaps slightly controversially, in the book, I talk about curing ageing. And as I say, that's not because I necessarily think it's going to be in the next five or 10 years, but it's because I want to normalise the idea that ageing is something we should seek to cure. You know, whether or not we want to call it a disease, we want to try and defer the ill health, the frailty of old age until as late as medically possible. And so I think, you know, in terms of human welfare, that's the single most important thing we could do. It's this concept of health span rather than lifespan, isn't it? Yeah, I think the really important thing is to, you know, to emphasise we want to maximise the health span. And there is no scientist who wants us to live you know, with our current decline of health and then spend you know, 50 or 80 years in a care home. We all want to be living youthfully until the end and then ideally you know, just pop off of a heart attack one night without having any preceding pain. So yeah, that's definitely the way to look at it, I think. Yeah, that, that's sort of my way to go. So it's some really exotic sexual tryst or something like that. <laughs> and finally, I, I have to ask, so you've, you've written this book, Ageless. You've looked into all this ageing research. Are there any things that you have started to do personally with all the information you've had? Because I know for me, writing a book about cancer, it's, it's made me take my health and like the health of my tissues and thinking about like inflammation and making sure that I am actually exercising more and thinking about my own health. So is there things that you've started to do differently? Yeah, and I've actually got a chapter about health advice in the book. And it's motivated me in a number of different ways, actually. The first of which is that understanding the biology behind some of this health advice really just makes it that much more salient. So if you think about, you know, some of the health advice is quite basic. You know, you've got to make sure you don't eat too much and eat a variety of food, make sure you get plenty of exercise, don't smoke. But understanding the sort of nitty gritty what's going on inside the molecules really, really motivated me to sort of pay a bit more attention to that stuff. The second facet is that it reveals some quite unexpected health tips. So my favourite one is to brush your teeth. And obviously there are good reasons to brush your teeth in terms of not wanting to have too many expensive visits to the dentist. But also it looks as though that could slow down the ageing process. And the reason is exactly, as you say, to do with inflammation. So back in the 90s, scientists were doing studies where they were looking at people's dental health and they noticed that people who had better gums, better teeth, tended to have less heart disease. And, you know, at first you think this is a classic case where correlation doesn't equal causation. There's some third factor. So let's think about poverty, for example. You know, maybe people who haven't got as much money, they haven't got as much time to look after their health. They also haven't got as much time to brush their teeth. They can't afford, you know, healthy food. So maybe this is all just mixed up in some complicated social explanation that isn't really related to the biology. But as we've understood more about how these things are connected, it seems that there is indeed a connection between toothbrushing and ageing. And that is because when you've got gum disease or when you've got tooth decay, it's something that your immune system can't ever quite get rid of. There's this constant low-level skirmish going on in your mouth. And over years, that's literally chronic inflammation. So that means it can accelerate heart disease. It could accelerate cancer. And uh, there's even been some sort of tentative evidence at the moment where they found bacteria related to gum disease in the plaques of people who have dementia. So the Alzheimer's dementia plaques in their brains. So obviously, again, it's correlation causation. Are those bugs taking advantage of the fact that their brains are in a right state and sort of escaping into there? Or are they a causative factor? But the fact is, I'm happy to take the risk and brush my teeth because obviously (laughs) there are a load of other benefits at the same time. It's it's a low investment brushing your teeth every night and morning. It really is, yeah. And I think the third reason that I've got really excited about this is because I think these therapies are going to be available in the lifetime of people who are alive today. And so what that means is that if I live for longer in good health, 
I could potentially get to the point where I live long enough to survive to get one of these treatments. And say, you know, say there's a really good senolytic available by the time I'm 65 and I take that. That might add a couple of years to my life. And then if that, you know, gives me another couple of years for another treatment to be developed, it just means I'm going to live longer and healthier. So it's a real motivator when you're out on a run on a freezing cold morning like we've got at the moment. Just, you know, keep going because potentially it means you're going to get over the finish line for some of these amazing treatments that are in the pipeline. I never expected that cleaning my teeth would be an anti-aging intervention, but I'll take it over a freezing cold jog any day. That is Andrew Steele, and you can find his book, Ageless, The New Science of Getting Older Without Getting Old, from all good and evil bookshops. And my latest book, Rebel Cell, about the origins and evolution of cancer, is also available from all retailers, with signed copies available from rebelcellbook.com. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzipped.com and on Twitter at Genetics Unzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so that more people can discover and enjoy the show? As Andrew mentioned, there's a lot going on in our bodies as we get older, including the gradual pileup of mutations inside our cells. But as Rahela Rabari and her colleagues at the Wellcome Sanger Institute in Cambridge are finding, there's more to this phenomenon than meets the eye, especially when it comes to the distinction between the immortal cells of the germline, which make eggs and sperm to create the next generation, compared to the rest of our bodies, known as somatic tissues. And to find out why, we need to go right back to the very beginning. So actually, this is a kind of interesting open question. So we all start the same by a fertilized egg, which essentially sperm and egg generate this fertilized egg. And we all start our life with one cell. And this cell goes through a lot of division, replication to generate a volume of a body. And this will undergo, obviously, aging. And we start seeing changes throughout aging. And it is really fascinating, to be honest, because, as you said, we start with one cell, but then how we change and how people during a natural process of aging acquire different diseases, for instance, like cancer, neurodegenerative disorders. It's really an open kind of question. What happened in our DNA, in our genome, in our body that maybe predispose some to, for instance, other diseases like cancer, some others to neurodegenerative disorders? We really don't know much about it. And in recent years, with a lot of effort in the scientific community, we started identifying some interesting information about how a single cell starts changing during life and may cause disease during adulthood and aging. So let's look at where this actually starts, because, you know, you you look at a baby and they look pretty perfect. You know, they're, they're all nice and nice and beautiful. But even at that stage, are there differences between the cells at this level of the DNA? When do cells start picking up changes and and becoming different? Because we sort of have this narrative that all the cells in our body are the same, they have the same DNA, the same genome. But when does this actually start becoming different? Absolutely. So even monozygotic twins that are generated from one 
cell, we now know that they are actually genetically, they are different. So even though from very early on, we all look the same, we all start from one cell, even in the twins that they share even one single cell, we start seeing the effect of aging. And this is because the whole mark of aging is accumulation of changes in our DNA, which is called mutation. And this is essentially a result of physical damages that cause to our DNA during the process of replication. So cell, as I said, has to divide to generate our body and also fulfill the volume which is required for different tissues to function. So we have a very great mechanism in our body that repair any physical damages that happen to our DNA. And during this repair mechanism, Uh, mutation happen. These are the changes in the DNA that essentially our repair machinery does not recognize them. So as much as it is a perfect machinery, yet it is not that perfect, like 100% perfect, and we still acquire mutations and changes in our DNA. So hence, from the very first cell division, we start accumulating changes. Obviously, these changes in the DNA not always cause disease or cancer, and these are the natural hallmark of aging, so we should not be worried about it. But something we don't know is what happened when mutation accumulate and changes in our DNA accumulate, at what stage they start changing into causing disease. And this part is really fascinating area that we are trying to understand. It is not really easy to essentially address detection of these DNA damages or mutations in a cancer setting in a tumor is a lot easier. I'm not saying it is an easy task, but it's a lot easier than looking at the natural changes that happens in our cell during aging. So we can study cancer data and tumor samples, identifying the changes in the DNA and compare it to what actually are the changes in a natural aging DNA, and maybe by subtracting this subset of mutations, we can identify the causal mutation that relate to, for instance, cancer or neurodegeneration. I find this so interesting because there's a lot in what you just said. I think one of the first things that's most interesting is we have this idea that, you know, mutations are caused by things outside us. You think of the obvious stuff like tobacco smoke or the ultraviolet radiation from the sun or x-rays or nasty chemicals, that all mutations come from the outside and damage us. But it has always surprised me learning the extent to which just the processes of life within our cells, you know, this process of DNA replication, just the actions of metabolism, <laughs> like how our cells make energy is damaging to our DNA. And and I think that's sort of a quite a surprising story to many people. Indeed. And this is definitely inevitable. Obviously, as you correctly said, there are exogenous factors like smoking, drinking alcohol, different dietary habits that can cause extra changes in our DNA and may cause a mutation. However, even within our body to function and to age naturally, we do accumulate mutations and this is something we cannot really change. So let's take a look at the way in which our bodies change through life. So, you know, to what extent are we finding these changes in the tissues of our body? You know, does it does it go okay and then suddenly it all goes crazy? And is it different in different parts of the body? 
This is a really interesting question. So we didn't know much about variation in terms of how changes in DNA happen in our different tissues within one individual. So if we compare, for example, colon from brain, from liver, do all these tissues accumulate mutation in their DNA at the same rate or is it actually different? So in our recent work and ongoing work, what we are trying to identify is actually how these mutations may accumulate in different tissues. Do we see variation? And indeed, recent results and study do show that there are variation in terms of how mutation and changes in DNA accumulate in different tissues. We can see that, for instance, colon from someone who has the age of 30 and is normal accumulate less mutation comparing to someone who has age of 80. So this looks like a linear accumulation of mutation. So as we age per year, colon tissue do accumulate mutation at a constant rate. And this accumulation of mutation recently we noticed that actually might be variable across different tissues. So it looks like that some tissues do accumulate mutation at a very lower rate. For instance, in testicular tissues from men, we realized that actually accumulation of mutation is a lot lower than his colon. And this is very interesting because they have a inheritance consequences. So if there is any changes in DNA in the testicular tissues, specifically in germ cells, they have inheritance consequences. So they can actually pass to next generation, to the children. This is really fascinating because it shows that there is an evolutionary pressure to keep mutation to accumulate in this tissue a lot lower and possibly protect the germ cells from acquiring mutation because of their evolutionary role. In some ways, this discovery that normal tissues have a lot of mutations, it doesn't really feel very new. It feels like for a long time we've just sort of said, oh, our cells pick up mutations as we go through life. But it feels like maybe we're really just starting to get it as a field. Does it feel like that? Yeah, definitely. I think, as you said, we did know, for instance, for somatic tissues such as colon, we knew they accumulate mutation with age. But something now we start understanding a lot more is the extent of mutation, the extent of burden on different tissues seem to be very different. So from a recent study and investigation that we are doing to interrogate mutation burden in normal tissues, we actually identifying the burden on uh, digestive tract is a lot higher from the other tissues, for instance, in the same individual. And this is actually quite important concept to understand why these tissues that are within the same person do accumulate mutation at such a higher rate. Sometimes we see 20-fold difference within our tissues. So some tissues keep accumulating mutations on like daily basis, and some mutations have a very slower rate of accumulation of mutation. So yeah, I think in a whole, as you mentioned, we did know as we age, we accumulate mutation, but the extent of it and how much variation now we start seeing in different tissue, I think this opens a very new interesting era to start interrogating and maybe identifying mechanism that cause accumulation of mutation across different tissues and their relevance to disease. 
Rahela Rabari from the Welcome Sanger Institute. That's all for now. We'll be back next time taking a look at the life of JBS Haldane, one of the leading geneticists of the 20th century. Remember to send in your ideas for topics you'd like us to cover to podcast at geneticsunzip.com or tweet us at geneticsunzip. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, just head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip and please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference and it helps more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Katani. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo is designed by James Mayle and audio production is by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.